Welcome to episode number 40 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. This week's going to be a bit of a weird week because I'm going to be out of town over the weekend, so typically I'll record a podcast usually around Sunday afternoon, then it'll be up late Sunday evening um, into the night. Uh, but I won't be around this Sunday, so rather than uh, just re- record one podcast and do it late, I'm going to have two podcasts this week, so I'll have this one, which is going to be a bit of a different format than the usual ones, and the one that's more of the regular format. That'll be number 41. As far as when that'll come out, probably Tuesday night, so I'm going to be getting back in town Tuesday morning. I'll have work during the day, uh, then I'll have to go to the gym later, um, have like two hours of jujitsu, and then after that, um, the goal would be to record it then. I don't know if anything else will come up at that point, and I'll have to push it back another day, but right now the plan would be for a late Tuesday recording for the regular podcast, so again, that'll have the recap of the UFC that happens this weekend in Rally and uh, a couple of the other big stories from the UFC. Uh, so this podcast is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be more of like a Q&A style. Uh, so I've had a handful of different questions that's been, that have been asked um, in comments before on YouTube. I've had people send me questions by email, which is the MMA rundown at gmail.com. Uh, I've had some questions that have come up on Twitter as well. So I compiled together a bunch of them, I think around uh, 13 or 14. Uh, so I'm just going to go down the line reading off those questions that I compiled, later, uh, comp- compiled already uh, and then just give some answers to them. Uh, so I'll start right now. Uh, first one on the list, we have, how much credit does Connor deserve for innovating shoulder strikes? Um, okay, so this one, I, I think a lot of people are, are definitely giving Connor a lot more credit than he deserves on that. Uh, a lot of people are acting as though Connor just invented the shoulder strike. You're seeing like old footage of Connor practicing shoulder strikes before. Uh, you have other people who are showing other fighters who've done shoulder strikes in the past. If you don't watch much MMA, you probably haven't seen shoulder strikes too much. So I guess if you don't watch a whole lot and you just saw them in the Connor fight, it seems like something new. Uh, if you are a big MMA fan, then you've definitely seen shoulder strikes shoulder strikes before. Uh, it's definitely something I've seen before. It's definitely something I've experienced before in the training room. Um, so he, he definitely didn't create it. I, I think what's unique for Connor is that it seems as though he had visible damage from it. Oftentimes, the shoulder strikes aren't creating a ton of um, visible damage where you're seeing someone uh, get their nose broken, um, seeing their eyes start to puff up uh, directly from a shoulder strike, so people will just kind of assume that they're just annoying strikes. Whereas with Connor, after he did it, you at least like saw this visible damage. I'm not sure whether or not he actually like hurt Cowboy Serrani to the point where like he was a little wobbly and like mildly concussed or like at a point where he was susceptible to getting knocked out after taking the shoulder strikes, but it definitely caused cosmetic damage. And it looks like... Um, at least after the fight, we know that Cowboy had a broken nose and also um, a slightly broken orbital, orbital, uh, orbital, orbital bone. Yes, uh, we know that that was the case. Uh, but what we don't know is he he took like nineteen or twenty strikes in that fight. Uh, a bunch of them he had covered up. I don't know if any of that damage was from the shots that were after that came after the head kick or if those were all from the shoulder strikes. But either way, uh, Connor was definitely effective with them. But if, if you saw that fight and felt as though Connor was like innovating somehow with shoulder strikes and he was doing something new that you hadn't seen before, that's definitely not the case. Um, him leaping into him even, I, I mean, that's definitely something I've seen before and felt before. Um, definitely felt it before in training. So what he was doing there wasn't new. Um, but for a lot of people who don't watch a ton of fights, it was new to them. So I, I guess from that standpoint, if you're kind of a casual fan and you feel like, hey, this is something that's new to me, I, I get that. But Connor didn't create a new strike theory. He really didn't even make any major innovations on a strike that wasn't already there. But because it was a high-profile fight and because it was uniquely effective in that fight, uh, a lot of it's being a lot of credit's being given to him. And I, I don't know that I could I could say that that's unfair because 
he was definitely effective with him, and it, it definitely helped him um, put Cerrone on his back foot before he was able to head kick, him, head kick him up against the fence and then finish him off after that. Next question. Are there fewer top NCAA wrestlers coming to MMA? Are they just not... Um, or are they just not reaching the top level? Uh, so this is actually interesting today, given the news that Bryce Meredith is planning to come to MMA after. Uh, he is done with the Olympic cycle this year. I don't know whether or not he's even going to qualify for the Olympic trials. I don't think he finished top five at Senior Nationals. Uh, so I think he's going to actually have to win a last-chance qualifier, which is going to be a pretty tough tournament. There, is, there are going to be some other high-level high wrestlers there. Bryce, I believe, is a three-time All-American. Started off at NC State. Uh, ended up transferring over to Wyoming, which I think was closer to home for him. Uh, but had a, a really good run in his last few years. Was ranked number one at some points during the year, uh, but would eventually fall in the uh, NCAA tournament. But he's definitely at a level where he can compete with a lot of those top guys, and he's an elite-level wrestler, so it'll be interesting to see how he does. Uh, to the question at large, I think that's an interesting question because if you want to get the correct answer to that, you'd probably actually have to like run some numbers, like look at all the NCAA wrestlers who competed in 2011, how many of them have gone to MMA, 2012, how many of them have gone, and actually look at the graph and see uh, how participation is going. Uh, so I don't actually have those numbers. I don't know where I would go to find those. Uh, so, I mean, I guess I could just look at all the participants and then just like run a search in SureDog, and that would take forever, and there might be some people with duplicate names, so I might still be wrong anyway. But without having that information, I just kind of have to go off a of feel, and it does feel like, at least getting to the top level, there just aren't as many guys who started in NCAA wrestling and have gone over to MMA. My guess for the reason why I think they're, I think it's twofold. So the conditions that are going to lead a wrestler to transition into MMA, and I guess this could apply to Jiu-Jitsu too or really any other sport. Um, so you, you kind of have conditions that are in place that are going to make you leave the sport you're already in, and then they're going to have to be conditions in place to make you feel as though you're going to be successful in the sport that you're moving over to. Um, so with wrestling, there has been more money that's gone into the sport. Uh, it's definitely gained in popularity. It, it's not a story that a whole lot of people have talked about, but just over the last weekend, uh, the Nebraska versus Iowa wrestling meet was, I believe, the 11th uh, largest audience for a college wrestling meet ever. And that kind of just went over everyone's head. And I think part of the reason why is because a lot of these records have been just happening in the last few years. And a, a lot of that has to do with the popularity of MMA and the popularity of a lot of fighters who came from wrestling backgrounds and have really brought a lot of attention back to that sport. Obviously, Daniel Cormier is coaching in the sport right now. Ben Askren does a ton of podcasts that are wrestling-related. So there's a lot more popularity coming into wrestling, I think, as a result. You're not seeing a ton of big programs that are going down in size, but you are seeing some, some smaller programs that are growing. Uh, so it seems like there are more opportunities in coaching and wrestling. Uh, it seems like the money, at the very least, hasn't gotten any worse there. So just in terms of, is it worth taking the risk of leaving wrestling? It seems as though it's becoming a little bit safer than it had been in the past to stay in wrestling, and it seems like there are more opportunities to make money. You also have these regional training centers that are aligned with a lot of these universities, and in some ways these regional training centers are kind of used um, for recruiting, where if you have a really strong regional training center, um, some athletes may feel that it's worth coming to your school as a result. So boosters are putting a lot of money into these regional training centers, and as a result, the money that's going in there, oftentimes they're paying the athletes who, who train there and try to work on, their, on making it to the Olympics. So there's money in there as well. So it, it seems like, at least from that angle, wrestlers don't have as much of a financial need to leave wrestling. And then also on the MMA front, as the sport evolves, just having wrestling isn't enough, and it's not doing enough. I mean, I remember a time when you'd have guys like Mike Pierce who would just be making it to the top 10 of the UFC and getting close to title fights with the wrestling that they had. Uh, 
Johnny Hendricks. I mean, I mean, Johnny Hendricks had a lot of success in part due to his um due to his left hand. Um, but but it feels like there aren't as many wrestlers who has been who are making it to the top of the division, especially at least in the UFC. If you look at how the UFC pay structure works, if you're not in the if you're not ranked, you're probably making close to ten and ten or making a little bit more than that uh, as you work your way up. Uh, especially if you haven't already established a name or been ranked before. Uh, so the real money in MMA kind of comes when you get ranked, uh, and then especially once you work your way up those rankings. So if you're a wrestler, you have to think how likely is it that I'm going to be getting ranked at some point. Um, maybe five or ten years down the line in, in MMA, um, and how much money is that going to net me? Um, and then how much money can I make just staying put in wrestling? And I think that equation, in, in the past, it was very favorable for for a transition to MMA, but I think at this point now, it seems less likely that you're going to be super successful in MMA, and it seems more likely um, that you're going to be able to find a way to make some decent money in wrestling and take less of a risk. And really, making that tra transition to MMA, that's not something that someone who doesn't think long-term is going to do. It, it, it's one of those things where if you're always looking at like the next paycheck or what's going what's to be best for me in six months or what's going to be best for me in a year, making a transition to MMA is not a good move. But if you're looking at what's going to be best for me in five years and ten years and twenty years, um, that's where making the transition to MMA might be more worth it. But not everyone thinks that way. So I think with all that being the case, that's, that's definitely part of the reason why we haven't seen as many big-name... Um, NCAA wrestlers who have gone over, gone over to MMA. It feels like a lot of the guys who I started watching in college wrestling, and I started watching college wrestling, I think, in 2011, uh, watched MMA, probably started that around 2009. It, it feels, like, feels like a lot of the names that I remember from watching college wrestling just haven't really been all that successful in MMA. I mean, we've had Bellator scoop up a lot of those guys, um, but even still, it doesn't feel like a whole lot of the guys who I remember watching are now... Uh, tearing it up in MMA, and I've been like I said, it's been since 2011. It's now 2020, so that, that's a good amount of time. I'm trying to think, like even guys like Chris Honeycutt. I remember when he got uh, signed by Bellator, and it seemed like he had a good shot to make a good career out of it. And things just haven't gone all that great for him in Bellator. Ed Ruth uh, was a huge name, uh, got in that welterweight tournament, uh, lost to Neiman Gracie. He's looking to find his footing again, uh, but he hasn't quite gotten to a point where he's a superstar. Uh, so it, it does kind of feel like we haven't had uh, a, a lot of great wrestlers um, transition to MMA and have great success in MMA, or at least not as much lately as there had been in the past. Uh, but it does, it does seem like there's a new crop right now that's starting to come up. Uh, you, you got your Bo Nichols, um, Anthony Kassar, Kyle Crutchmer is already, um, I believe he's in Bellator now, but he had a good career at Oklahoma State. Uh, we got Sebastian Rivera talking about going into MMA once he's done with his career at Northwestern. Nick Soriano, I think, is planning on doing the same. Uh, so at least it seems like um, this current crop has, has a little bit more interest and there's some really good guys among that crop, and maybe they, they find their way into the top of the UFC rankings at some point in the future, but it does seem like there's been a bit of a stalling on that. And I, I think considering the two different uh, a aspects of it, both in terms of money that you can make in staying in wrestling and then also uh, reduced likelihood of making it to the top of a division now as the game evolves, uh, I, I think that's definitely played a role. Next question. Why would Connor publicly praise Trump on MLK Day of all days? MLK. Oh, because I, I get that. So I think I think the question there is, Connor could praise Trump at, at any point. Why did he choose uh, Martin Luther King Day uh, of any day to do it? Uh, it doesn't seem like there's any rhyme or reason to it. It's not as though he was praising him at a time when Trump was being... It's not as though Trump like put up a big post about how great the UFC is and then Connor like, was then spurred by that. It, it just didn't seem like Trump's post had anything to do with Connor or MMA and Connor chose that post of all posts to to talk about how Trump's the GOAT president. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, 
I guess the question there would become, were there alter, ulterior motives for Connor? Maybe Connor just really appreciates MLK and felt that was a good time for him to to, to step in there. I, I don't know whether or not that'd be the case, especially growing up, growing up in Ireland. I don't know that MLK is a civil rights icon, even for, for, people, for people in Ireland. Um, hmm. That's a good question. I, I guess another possibility could be that maybe he's angling for a fight with someone. Uh, we know George Mas or Hori Masvidal um, is a big fan of Trump and got some positive uh, reinforcements from Trump after he got the win over Nate Diaz. We know uh, Kamara Usman, maybe not the biggest fan of Trump, although with him it's been a little bit odd. Uh, after his fight, he had mentioned that he wanted to go to the White House. I was, I'm still, I would still like to have someone ask uh, either him or Dana what the update on that is, if if that's something they're actually working towards. Uh, rather than that guy who asked about sexual assault from Conor McGregor, from Conor McGregor, maybe he could have asked uh, Dana what about uh, Kamara going to the White House instead. Um, but there's that, and then also Kamara took a picture of him reading uh, Donald Trump Jr.'s book at an airport. So I'm not sure exactly where Kamara lands with that, but I don't think Kamara's a fan of Trump regardless. And so maybe he's trying to angle um, for a fight with Kamara and kind of using that as a seed for it. I don't know. It does seem kind of weird that he would pick MLK Day of all days to to go and reach out to Trump. You, you would figure that there's there's a little bit something beneath that uh, where he might be angling for a fight, especially given uh, the relevance that Trump has in the welterweight division right now between Colby, um, Camaro, and uh, Jorge Masvidal. Uh, so maybe that's the reason why, but... On its face, it's not clear why exactly of all days to to publicly proclaim, proclaim his love for Trump that he would choose that day. Uh, next question. Is it possible that the Kamaru Usman Twitter hack benefited him? Yeah. So, I, I think the way to, to answer that question is to actually look at Kamaru Usman's Twitter following and see if there was like a big spike in it. From what I was able to find... And this was kind of limited. It was like a day by day thing, and it's kind of hard to tell, like how he how his account does on a normal fight week. But in terms of followers, there was a spike on the night of the fight. Uh, so normally, it seems as though he, his increases in followers are on a daily basis, is like plus three twenty five, plus two seventy four, plus two thirteen, plus two eighty one, plus two thirty one, plus two ten, plus one eighty three, plus two thirty six, plus four hundred two. So it's all kind of like around the 300 range, maybe a little bit less. Maybe you could say he's like an average of 275 or so. I'm not actually running the number on that. Um, but then what was attributed attributed to Sunday, so that was kind of like your Saturday night, Sunday morning, uh, and this is around the time that he got hacked. It was plus 2,925. So is that because he's front row and featured on a major pay-per-view that a lot of people are watching with Conor McGregor? Um, or is that because a lot of people wanted to have follow his account as he was getting hacked and stuck around after that? Um, at least the days after that, he, he then went up plus 2,169 and then plus, plus 1,919 and then plus 984. Um, so he's been seeing his Twitter following increase, um, probably like six or seven times the normal rate. Um, uh, at least according to, to the window of information I have here. So I guess if that, if the reason for that is, is more based around the fact that his Twitter account got hacked and people were interested rather than people being interested because there was the fight with Connor and his name is relevant because of it. Um, it it's sort of hard to attribute um, how much of it, how, how much of each of those factors is behind the the increase there. Um, but there's definitely an argument to be made that that the hack kind of helps him at least gain a little bit of a Twitter following there, or at least like add on a little bit more than he otherwise would have had. As far as the negatives of it, um, if he actually did get it, get did get hacked, someone had access to his bank information, they were taking money away. Uh, that could definitely be a problem for him. Um, but it, as long as that all gets taken care of and 
they get the security, the account security taken care of. In the end, probably is going to be a good thing. I don't think too many people saw it and thought that that was actually what Kamaru had to say. So it's not like people are looking at looking down on him for it. Uh, but there were some people who were entertained by it and wanted to follow him as a result. So maybe long term, this hack could actually benefit him rather than hurt him, which is kind of interesting. Next question. Um, why does Stephen A. Smith work UFC events instead of Max Kellerman? Um, I think, from my understanding, and I think this is something that Chael Sonnen had talked about before, now again with Chael, uh, he's kind of 50-50. Sometimes he um, goes a little bit over the top, and sometimes he's got great information. Uh, so you kind of have to use some critical thinking here, and I don't really have enough information to put too much critical thinking into this, but... He's saying that Stephen A. Smith is actually a fan of MMA, and when he's on the MMA on the UFC broadcast, oftentimes it's, it's something that he pushes for. Um, and the broadcast that he's been a part of, it was when it, I think it was the first UFC on ESPN Plus, uh, and then we have this one with Connor. So it seems like he's kind of picking out the big one. So the big one, obviously, was that it was the first one that the the first one that the UFC had with ESPN Plus. That was a Dillashaw versus Cejudo one, uh, and then obviously Conor McGregor is a, a huge superstar. So given his pull at the company, if he wants to do it, then they'll let him do it. Uh, so I, I think for ESPN, had Stephen A. Smith not jumped in and said he wanted to do it, I don't think they would have felt the need to put him or Max Kellerman in. So I, I, I guess Kellerman kind of doesn't apply there, and it wasn't necessarily something where they, they were choosing on merit so much as they were choosing based on um, just someone who's high up at, at the company, uh, someone that has a lot of pull there, just, just, just kind of leveraging that pull. Also, Max Kellerman... He knows a lot about boxing. I don't know that he knows a whole lot about the rest of MMA. And if I remember right, when the Conor versus Floyd thing was happening, a lot of his takes on MMA weren't particularly good either. Uh, so while he does understand boxing, uh, going beyond that into kind of like the kicks, uh, going into wrestling, going into jiu-jitsu, uh, you probably get a lot of shitty takes out of him too. And plus, there are plenty of MMA people who are on staff for ESPN that they can bring in, oftentimes do bring in, whether it's like your Chael Son and your Michael Bisping and those kind of types of guys. So if you're worried about the UFC having the best guys on the broadcast, I think for the most part they do, or at least they have the best guys that are on staff um, in terms of having like past fighters or having people who cover the sport for, the, for a long time. So to me, I don't feel as though Max Kellerman's getting screwed over by him not being on there. I don't know that I'd want him on there in the first place. Uh, and, and it seems like Stephen A. Smith being on there is more of a, a thing where he's he's going out of his way to get on it. And I think ultimately it's still a good thing for MMA to have a, have a big personality like Stephen A. Smith. I didn't agree with his takes. Uh, obviously I saw the boxing footage and that wasn't particularly good, but with that being said, Stephen A. Smith covers MMA for like 10 minutes every year, it seems like at this point. Like you don't get, I guess he also does it on the show too, but he doesn't cover a ton. If you're interested in MMA, you're going to listen to a lot more people than Stephen A. Smith. Uh, you're going to get plenty of good takes when you're listening to other people, especially more qualified people. Um, so don't see the harm if you're a hardcore fan and you're already following it closely. If you don't follow it at all, then, I mean, what's Stephen A. Smith going to do? Even if he has a bad take, it might be enough to kind of lure, lure you in, get you interested, and then eventually you'll you'll learn more about the sport and move on past Stephen A. Smith and his takes. So I don't really see the harm in him having a role in those UFC shows, especially the big ones. Uh, if it brings more eyes, if it brings more interest, then that's, that's fine with me. So I, I guess that's how I would answer that. Uh, next question. How do you see the UFC heavyweight division shaking out this year? Um, so I think this question is because of Stipe Miocic, it sounds like he is has an eye injury that was from his last fight with Cormier, and that eye injury is not healing, or at least not in a very quick manner. So then I guess the question there is, do probably do I think that Stipe is going to be back this year? Um, if yes, how does the division look? Um, and if no, how, do, how does the division look? 
Um, so I guess I'll answer if yes. If yes, then you're going to get the fight with Cormier. Um, it's going to probably depend on when he's healed up by, but if we say sometime mid mid this year, you, you'll get the fight with Cormier mid, midway through the year. Um, after that fight, I, I guess it depends on who wins. Assuming that Cormier sticks to his plan of retiring after this last fight, um, if Cormier wins, then you're, you're going to have a, a vacancy at the title, and at that point, you could possibly do Stipe, Stipe versus Ngannou too. Um, I, I guess Stipe and Ngannou too would be an option either way, especially if Ngannou wins against uh, Rosenstrike. Uh, so that's a possibility. Rumble was supposed to be a part of this, but I don't think he's entered the the drug testing. Um, I, don't, I don't think he's entered USADA yet, which is somewhat surprising. I talked about late last year how I felt like if Rumble was in this division that he could potentially find himself um, earning a title fight, if not earning a title. The matchup with Cormier wouldn't be great for him, but he's not going to have to worry about Cormier because Cormier, at, at most, is probably going to fight one time in this division. So I think it, even if you do get the Cormier versus Stipe fight, you're probably going to have one more title fight um, that'll happen later in the year. Um, so if Cormier wins that, then you're going to have an interim title fight, and it's going to be a question of does Stipe get a shot at that interim title? Or does Stipe get a shot at the vacant title, and then you pick the top contender at that point? Or do you just take two top contenders and put them together at that point? Uh, it seems like right now that could be heavily weighed by how Curtis Blades does in this fight against Junior Dos Santos if Curtis Blades wins it. Um, and especially if Rosenstrike is able to get a win over, is able to pull the upset against um, Francis Ngannou, then you can possibly say Blades versus Rosenstrike might be a title fight down the line. Um, I, I don't know if they're going to do that because you're probably going to have to hang on to both of them for a while and see how the heavyweight title fight shakes out. So I, I guess if Stipe can fight this year, you're probably going to get that title fight mid-year, and then I, I'll just assume that Stipe, even if he loses, is going to get a, a shot at the vacant title, in which case, at, at some point in the year, you're going to have Stipe versus either Francis, Rosenstrike, or Blades, probably one of those three. I don't think Surreal Gans at, at a point where he's either going to be able to win enough fights to, to be in that title picture, or even is going to win those fights against the top guys in the division, so I wouldn't really look look at him as a, as a guy in there. So I think it's going to be Stipe versus Nganu, Blades, or, um, or Rosenstrike uh, at, at some point. And that'll pro- whoever whoever comes out of that four is going to be your, your heavyweight champion at the end of the year. Uh, and then if that fight doesn't happen, then you're probably going to have an interim title fight. Um, so Stipe will probably still be the champion. Um, and they'd be looking to make a fight between Stipe and then probably... A, one of those three, Ngannou, Blaze, or Rosenstrike, would probably be the be the interim champion at that point, and be, would be looking to face him later on, assuming that Stipe can, can continue his career. Which I would hope that it's not a career-threatening injury, but I guess if it takes him out the entire year, maybe it might be. Um. Next question: If you could be UFC president for a day, what changes would you make? Hmm. Um, I think the UFC, for the most part, they they do a lot of things right. Um, at least given the position they're in. I think one of the more difficult things for them is that the, the fighters are independent contractors and not employees. Um, they run the numbers on that, and I guess they feel so that's the best way for them to do things. Um, but one of the downsides to that is it, it definitely takes away their leverage a lot of times when they're trying to make matchups. Um, the fighters are constantly renegotiating for more money. Um, fighters are constantly turning down opponents. Um, so it, it feels like matchmaking can be more, can be made more difficult because of that. 
to me, I, I, I guess along that line, the, the big change I would probably try to make if I was UFC president for a day is that right now fighters are paid only for showing up to fight uh, after they made weight. And, or at least I think I think at the very least it's making weight. Um, I guess if you make weight and then you refuse to fight, you're probably not going to get paid. But you, your pay comes from actions that are taken on a Friday and a Saturday of a fight week. Um, but you're not paid um, leading up to it. Leading up to it, though, there are a lot of press conferences and press opportunities. Even if you're going to pay a fighter the exact same, like even if your plan is to, to pay a fighter 50 and 50, I would rather negotiate it where like the fight night pay is like 40 and 40, but then you also have like up to $20,000 in bonuses for media work and kind of have it set that way where you're, you're still paying a fighter the exact same amount, but you actually have the money um, based around media, media, um, the, the amount of time that they spend talking to media and like doing work promoting the fight. One of the things that seems to bother, that seems to annoy me a lot with um, with the current crop of MMA fighters is a lot of them still don't seem to understand that as a professional athlete, you're also a professional entertainer and that you're, the money you make in MMA is oftentimes tied to how well you're able to promote a fight, how many tickets you're able to sell, how many eyes you're able to get onto a fight. And so if you're able to structure the pay a little bit differently where you're encouraging them to do more activities and understand the value of the activities that, that get more people to watch, I think ultimately that's going to have a, a good effect for the business. I think it's going to make more money for the business over time. And obviously as the business makes more money, then you're going to be able to pay the fighters more, assuming you're paying a fixed percentage, which which it seems like they're kind of paying a fixed percentage of around 20% of gross right now. Um, so to me, the big change I would make is I'd try to put more financial incentives around the promotion side. Even if you're still planning on paying a fighter the exact same amount, rather than have it all lumped into fight night, um, kind of takes them out and, and put it into the promotion aspect. And plus, if a fighter sees that some money is being applied to, to media work and media availability, then they might feel a little more, a little bit more interested in doing it and take a little bit more pride in that work as well. So that I think that's probably the big change that they can make that might not make a major difference immediately financially for them, where they might, they might not be paying fighters a whole lot more, but I, I think it could definitely bring in more money and help these fighters understand the value of promoting themselves. Uh, next question. Who's the biggest name fighter you train with? Best unknown fighter. Um, trained with could mean a couple things. So trained with could mean... Oftentimes when you're training, you're, it's not just like two people in a room. You often have like 20 people in a room or more. Uh, so trained with could mean shared a mat with where I had a big name fighter who was on a mat, uh, but I wasn't actually like their partner at any point. And then there are ones where I actually was a partner with or did train with. So I guess I'll split that into two. So... Biggest names that I've shared a mat with but haven't actually trained one-to-one with uh, would probably be Robbie Lawler at Militich. And um, and I said at Militich, not Pat Militich. So at Militich Fighting Systems. And then um, Martin Campman. Uh, when I was in Vegas at one point, I went over to Drysdale's to, to do like one of their advanced Nogi classes, and he was in there. Um, and then as far as guys who I have actually trained with... Um, Probably between Eddie Wineland and Evan Dunham. Um, I'd probably say Eddie Wineland is the bigger name just because he's fought for a title. Um, but Wineland trains at the... When when he's in camp, he'll, he'll, he'll train at the gym that I train at uh, right now. So I've gotten plenty of rounds with him. And and most familiar with him, I guess, uh, of all the na- fighters he would consider big-name fighters. Um, and then the other question was the other question. Best unknown fighter. Uh, so that's probably fighters who most people don't know of yet, but are, are really good in the training room. Uh, there's probably two of them that I'd put in there. Um, so first one 
I don't know if he's had a fight for Kambach yet, but he did get signed um, to make his pro debut for them. Um, his name is Jesus Villegas or Villegas. He is probably the most talented guy I've seen in the room, but sort of has like some some other personal stuff that he's, he's still got to work with. Um, definitely on the physical side, incredibly talented. Um, but even as an amateur, he, he, he would lose some fights where it'd be shocking to see him lose those fights, um, given his skill set. Um, so in terms of potential, he, he's one of those guys where if he, he gets his head screwed on and, and does the right things, he could really be special. Um, but it's just going to be a question of whether or not that's the, that ends up happening. Um, and then I, I guess another one to look at would be um, Mike De La Vega. Uh, so he's fought for Bellator. For him, I, I kind of feel bad because from a skill standpoint, like he he's highly skilled, very good wrestler. Um, now he's a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, a really good kickboxer as well. Um, he's a Muay Thai coach as well. So for him, he, he's got a really good all-around skill set, but the problem that he had is that he knew he wanted to get MMA for a long time. And a lot of times when you're watching the UFC, you, you kind of see the success stories where you have the guy who, who as a high schooler was taking pro fights or who was taking pro fights at a really young age and was doing really well. Um, you, you kind of think of Nate Diaz, for example. They talk about how he, like, when he was, like, in his teens, he beat up a, a grown adult in a fight. With Mike, I think it kind of went the other way, where he sort of bit off a little bit more than he can chew a little bit too soon. Um, so it, on, on one hand, that kind of hurt his record, where with the UFC just getting a shot with them, even on a contender series, you have to have a great record. Um, but then also there's some confidence things with it, too. Uh, I think at the time he was, like, a blue belt when he took his pro debut, um, got taken down, uh, wasn't very effective off his back, and it kind of took away a lot of confidence. And I think a big issue with that is he's got a great guillotine. He's got a really difficult guard to deal with, too. Um, really good wrist control, um, pretty trappy guard, good good triangles. So the problem for him is that after losing a fight where he was on his back and really didn't defend himself, even though he improved his jiu-jitsu a lot after then, there was still kind of a lack of confidence in positions where he was actually pretty good um, in, in some fights that happened after that, and that sort of messed with his record. So I think right now he's 3-2 and two or somewhere around there so for him to even get a shot at the UFC he'd probably have to go on like a like a five fight win streak of all finishes uh, not to say he can't do it but that's that's not an easy task uh, so he kind of put himself behind the eight ball there just going in the deep end right away at a young age um, I, I guess that's one of the downsides with the UFC is that you just kind of assume that everyone who's going to be making their debut is going to be undefeated or is going to have a bunch of finishes before they get in uh, but you, you don't have a thing about the people who are are at that level now but they they kind of jumped in a little bit too soon, and as a result, their record maybe isn't maybe isn't indi- indicative of where they're at right now. So I think with him, that's kind of the case. Um, but still, a really good fighter, and I'm sure he'll get some more shots with Bellator, and it'll be interesting to see how he does if he if he does get those opportunities. Um, next question: uh, Should Macy Barber publicly feud with her dad over comments on Roxanne Modafferi fight? I'm assuming publicly feud just means disagree with. I don't know that she would needs to go out and like disavow of her father or do anything like that so if we're assuming the question is just asking to disagree with then <sighs> I, I i mean yeah the the comments from her dad were were really stupid um they were widely mocked and deservedly so i get to an extent i get where he's coming from uh especially when you consider that these are public comments sometimes when people make public comments they're just publicly saying exactly what they think and sometimes when people make public comments they're they're trying to phrase things in such a way where they're trying to affect public opinion it's not clear what bucky barber was trying to do with his comments uh, but the comments effectively said that macy didn't really lose the fight she had her knee injury right away um had her knee been fine then she would have been able to win that fight 
where he went beyond that was when he started talking about how she's just a much better fighter. Her her skills are are, are so great, and that really didn't show through. The the thing with Macy, she's had some moments in, in her UFC career where she hasn't looked great in fights, but then eventually she kind of comes back and and starts to take over, lands a big shot, and then is able to get a finish. Uh, you look at the J.J. Aldrich fight, for example. She looked really bad in the first round, was getting outstruck pretty badly. Second round comes around, she cracks J.J. Aldrich and finishes her up against the fence. And people remember that finish more so than they remember the, the tough first round. So with Macy, given her history, assuming that her knee isn't injured, is it crazy to think that after that first round that she comes back out there, um, has a couple of adjustments in, the, in her corner, comes back out there and is able to stay on the feet, maybe land a big shot and eventually finish Roxanne? You know, like... Based on her past, you know, maybe that happens. I, I wouldn't say that I, I'd expect it to happen, but I guess maybe it happens. But g- given that her knee gave out on her and after taking a light jab, she fell down, that took the opportunity away for her to make the comeback that she's made in previous fights. So I, I, I guess I can see that frustration from the Barbers where it's kind of like, yeah, that first round didn't go well, but we've had first rounds go poorly in the past and made adjustments in, one, in the later rounds. This could have been the same way if not for the knee. So I, I can see that line of thinking. Uh, again, there there are much bigger issues at play. I think with him talking about how she was technically better, she was not technically better on the feet. Her her, pun, her, her punches just weren't very straight. They weren't straight, uh, weren't very sharp, weren't very well-timed. Uh, she was taking a lot of shots from Roxanne Montefiore. Um Her defense isn't particularly good on the feet. So as far as technique and skill on the feet, I, I mean, she's definitely got power, but there, there's been a hole there for a while, and then that, that didn't appear any different in this fight. And then on the ground, uh, just really didn't seem to know what she was doing off her back. Um, a lot of basics from the half guard position really weren't being met there. She wasn't really fighting for under hooks, trying to get up on her side. Um, I, I can understand with the knee injury that it can sort of take away some opportunities, like for her. Um, I, I think the side that she would have used for a butterfly hook was the side of, of the bad knee, so you know that maybe takes that away, but there are other attacks that you can go for. Uh, you, you can work to get back to your full guard. Um, there, are, there are things you can do with a blown-out ACL on the ground. Um, then she wasn't doing those. Uh, so it seemed like there were a lot of basics, just, just pure Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu basics that weren't really there for her. So again, the skill on the ground didn't really show either. So to say that she looks, that she was better in skill than Roxanne in either way, don't agree with that at all. But to an extent, even though I don't necessarily agree with it, I can kind of understand where Macy or Bucky would feel that she she was still in the fight and would have been in the fight and possibly could have found a way to win had that knee injury not been there. Um, and, and again, like I mentioned, because of how that fight with J.J. Aldrich went, uh, I think the Hannah Cypress fight at, at times wasn't always going great for her either before she was able to win that. So I'm not too upset by it. I, I think if you if she actually believes what Bucky was saying, though, that she has the skill to be a champion right now, that she's more skilled than Roxanne, that's going to be a problem for her because there's a lot of improvement that needs to be made for her, um, especially, well, I mean, really, especially everywhere. The wrestling could be a lot better, just seeing how the takedown was able to get her down. Uh, the striking could be a hell of a lot sharper. Um, Jiu-Jitsu definitely has a lot of room for improvement, so she really needs to improve everywhere. And if you kind of go off of the attitude of the package you have right now is enough, uh, that, that's definitely going to be a problem. Um, so I, I would hope, if anything, that she takes from it. Uh, she takes it. There's a lot of a lot of room for growth there from a technical standpoint. Um, and sometimes when, you're, when your body fails, you, you, you kind of have to have some more, some more weapons in your toolbox to, to find a way to win. I mean, even with that injury, there were a couple times where she was getting close on, on some arm locks. Uh, I think she was going for an Americana that was relatively close at times. Um, she was able to get top position a handful of times. So again, if, you're, if your guard passing is there, your, your pressure is heavy, 
even with a bad knee, like there are chokes you can find with your arms. Like th there are other ways to win in spite of that injury. Uh, I mean, even if you think about Conor McGregor when he fought Max Holloway, where he blew out his knee in the second round, was able to take Max down and in the third round and, and and win that fight, win that round, and then win that fight. Like th there are ways to win in, in spite of injuries, especially if you have a lot of tools. And Macy didn't have the tools, and it, it definitely cost her. So. To me, the, the biggest red flag here is that it, it seems as though they're not learning the lesson of there's a lot of skill improvement that needs to be made here. Um, but I also kind of get, I, I to an extent, I kind of get where they're coming from with that. W whether I agree with it or not, different story, but at least I kind of understand what, why they would say what they're saying. Uh, next question. Have you ever thought about covering sports betting? Okay, um, so I, I do to an extent. Uh, if there are fights where... I, I feel like there's a really strong, strong reason to believe that one fighter is going to win over another. I'll, I'll say something like the the Greg Hardy versus Alexander Volkov one. I, I was talking about that. I said I was going to bet my entire account on Volkov, and that you should too. Volkov ended up winning that fight, so I was right on that. Um, when the Mickey Gall versus Alex Oliveira fight was made, I, I talked about how that's another one where you want to put all your money on Oliveira. Um, even the Condit versus Gall one is a similar thing. So if I see a fight where, to me, it seems really obvious who's going to win, then I'll say something. But the problem is, is that betting MMA is really difficult for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and I've kind of had to find that, find out the hard way. So in my betting account, I've had to refill it like twice over the last four or five years. Uh, so for the most part, I pretty much break even in it. Uh, but I find that when I make bets where I'm confident in one fighter, but I don't know much about the other one, that becomes a big issue because you can't, you have to know both fighters involved. Um, so that, that makes it difficult in that if you're dealing with guys who are both big names, you're probably not going to get the the most obvious odds on them um, because people know what to expect from both fighters. But if you're dealing with someone who's a smaller name, um, that's an opportunity for you, but that also means you have to do a lot of research on them as well. And quite frankly, I don't really have the time or the resources to do that. So I, I wouldn't want to cover sports betting too much to the point where I'm giving out advice as if listen to me and you're going to make some money because quite frankly, I haven't been making a ton of money on it. So why would I, why would I give out advice with any form of confidence and expect other people to, to believe me or if you do then i'd kind of feel bad about it if i'm like giving you break even break even mma betting <laughs> mma betting picks because there's really not a whole lot of whole lot of not, not really a big point in it so I, I guess that's part of it uh and then even if you do know a lot about both fighters if you understand their games both really well like there are a lot more there's a lot more that goes into it even than that because uh, you have to be able to, to guess how how those games can interact with each other um what skills does a fighter have? What skills is the fighter going to use? I think a perfect example of that would be Tony Ferguson versus Khabib. So Tony Ferguson has a couple of different really good grappling skill sets. One is that he's a Division Two national champion in wrestling, in folk style wrestling, that is. So within that skill set, if you get taken down, then you got to be able to build your way back up. And even if you don't get taken down, uh, you're going to start in the bottom of referee's position uh, in pretty much every match. You're going to have to be work your way back up to your feet. Um, also in jiu-jitsu, um, he's a black belt, and in jiu-jitsu, if you're in your guard, oftentimes you're going to look to attack off your back, which is a, a, a much different strategy than just trying to work your way back up and make that your plan. So if you're looking at this Khabib fight, if you know that Tony Ferguson, if he wants to, can be difficult to hold down and can, can try to make it like a folk-style wrestling match and work his way back up, sort of like what Dustin Poirier tried to do, um, but you also know that if he wants to, he can stay in his guard and try to break down Khabib's posture and sort of use an Eddie Bravo 10th plan system where he's trying to work from rubber guard and attack from there. So you know that he's capable of doing both things, but you don't necessarily know which one he's going to do. And if you look at it and say, well, against Khabib Nurmagomedov, it would be more effective to 
try to work way work your way back up to your feet up to your feet and make him work on top. Um, expect that his top game is going to be better than your be be more effective than your guard. If you feel like that's the case with Khabib, then you still have to guess. Well, yes, Tony can be difficult to hold down, but is Tony going to try to get up, or is Tony just going to try to work off his back? And you have to know, even though he has the skill set to do what you think he should do, you don't know whether or not he's actually going to do it. Uh, and that goes the other way too, where if you think that the answer to Khabib is to attack him off your back and not be afraid of him, um, then you kind of wonder, well, is he going to attack off his back and try to get a, a gigantic win for Eddie Bravo in Tenth Planet, or is he going to? try to work his way back up and not do that so uh, again that's another difficulty thing another difficult thing is you even if someone has a skill set that you think is necessary to win you don't nece- you don't always know if they're going to use it so with that being said and also with mma these, these guys fight like twice or two or three times a year over the course of a year you can make a lot of improvements and you can close some holes in your game so if you have a fighter who fights two or three times a year especially if they get early finishes where you don't really get to see a whole lot of their wrestling you don't get to see a whole lot of their jiu-jitsu uh, even if you do get to see some of it, you don't get to see it from all the positions that you think are relevant. Uh, it definitely makes it difficult to determine how a fight's going to go and, and have an educated pick. So I, I think for those those reasons, I try to stay out of it. I'll still mention odds if they're available when I'm looking at the the list of fights. Um, if I do think that there's a fight where the odds are off, kind of like the Montefiore versus Barber one, I'll mention that too, where I was saying, I think Barber's going to find a way to, to land a big shot here and, and steal us at some point, but I feel, felt like Roxanne was a more skilled fighter. So I mentioned there, I was like, at, at 10 to 1, there seems to be a lot of value here on Roxanne. Um, so, so I'll mention that as well if I if I see something, but I don't think having a, a weekly betting segment or or making like strong betting picks every week is necessarily going to be the best idea because, quite frankly, I'm not going to have the time to, to put in the research. And even with all the research, there are a bunch of other um, other factors at play that you really can't keep keep track of. So... I'm probably going to plan to keep things going the same way they are. Granted, from a personal standpoint, I'll still be betting every so often. If I start winning a bunch of money and find that my account just continues to grow and grow, then at that point I might be like, okay, I'm starting to get pretty confident in this MMA betting thing. Maybe now I'll start to give up my picks, but as long as I'm breaking even, I don't feel like it's it's best for me to constantly give out betting picks. Um, next question. Is Gordon Ryan going to fight MMA? If yes, how good can he be? This... So I guess the big issue I have here in trying to figure this one out is what's the deal with his retirement from jiu-jitsu? His explanation for the retirement from jiu-jitsu is that he's just been working so hard to, to be the best in the world, and it's just kind of burned him out, and he feels like there are other things he can do to enjoy life. If that is true, if that is the case, and if he is planning to actually retire from jiu-jitsu for a while, then I don't see how MMA is going to be a part of his future because the grind that he had to put in jiu-jitsu is a similar grind that's going to be put in MMA, uh, except it's probably going to be harder for him because at least with jiu-jitsu, he's arguably the best guy in the world right now. So you can sort of limit it. You, you, you can kind of manage the damage taken within within training. Uh, whereas if you're in there with people who are much better than you, it's kind of up to them in terms of how rough training goes for you at times. Um, so the, the work he'd have to put in would would be extremely hard. And if the work that he's been doing in jiu-jitsu is too much for him now, I don't see how the work that would be required for MMA would not be too hard, so I think that would be an issue. Uh, so it's going to depend on whether or not that was the real motivation behind him taking a break. And, you know, maybe he does take a break, but he decides, you know what, I, I don't like the hard work, I don't like that I'm not being able to enjoy life as much as I'd like right now, but you know what, I'm planning to live until I'm like 70 or 80. Um, my 20s, 30s, and 40s, 20s and 30s at least should be towards achieving the most that I can given the skills that I've been given and 
just kind of go from there. And maybe at that point he decides to dedicate himself to MMA. Um, but I think it's it's too early to tell what the case is there. But if the case really is that he was burnt out from jiu-jitsu, then I don't really see him going in MMA. Uh, then the question of how good could he be. For jiu-jitsu guys in MMA, the, the, the two big things I look for, I look for someone who can be effective at taking the fight to the ground where they want the fight to be. And then I look for people who, once on the ground, are able to continuously improve position. Uh, one of the worst things you can have is being able to finally take a guy down only for them to get back up or being able to take a guy down uh, but not being able to pass their guard or if you pass their guard having trouble going in a mount or going to a position where you're able to get a finish. Uh, if you do get the fight on the ground as a jiu-jitsu guy, it's important that you're able to finish within that round or at least do a lot of damage where you're better off at the end of the round than you were at the start of it. So for Gordon, the takedowns kind of worry me. Um, I don't know... Uh, his his wrestling's decent, but a lot of he he's got decent defensive wrestling. A really good really good guillotine series. Really good from the front headlock. Um, as far as shooting shooting for takedowns, which would be a really important skill for him in 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 MMA, that's definitely something that's gonna, that's going to have to be developed a little bit more. Uh, so that could be a bit of a problem for him. And imagine that if he tries to pull guard, if he can get a closed guard or get some kind of guard where he's got good control of his opponent, then he'll be okay. Um, but that could be a, a bit of a challenge as well. Uh, so th that part of it could be a little bit tricky for him, but I'm sure with enough training, and especially with 205 and heavyweight not being the most skilled divisions, th there's still plenty of runway for him to get get pretty high up in a division regardless. Um, and then as far as him being a kind of guy where once he gets on the ground, he's able to constantly improve position, I think for the most part that, that does apply to his game, so at least that's there. Um, so I guess for him it would just be a question of, uh, how effective is he at getting fights to the ground, and how does his striking how does his striking develop in the meantime? And that would probably go a long way in determining how good he can be. But I, I guess the how good how good can he be thing is gonna become a question of be, become a question if he decides to actually make the transition on May and really devote himself to being a professional athlete in a very difficult sport. Uh, so only time will tell on that one but hopefully he does decide to to go back into the competitive side of things but it, to, to kind of bring it back to another question i had um which was that one about wrestling same type of situation with wrestling where you have the two sides of it where you have how likely is it that i'm going to make it to the top of mma and make big money there and then you have the the side of it where it's like how much money can i make right now staying within the sport gordon ryan can make plenty of money staying in mma or staying in brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, especially coaching he makes plenty of money off of his instructional dvds uh, he can make plenty of money off of seminars. Uh, so he can e easily make six figures plus just staying in jiu-jitsu right now, even if he wants to go back into competing in jiu-jitsu. So for MMA to be worth it, the hope would be, for, for him it would either have to be that he's going to make more money in MMA, which means he's going to have to get really high ranked in the UFC, uh, which may or may not be feasible for him. Um, but then also, to put that over the top, you, you'd probably have to have like some strong desire from him to, to want to be an MMA champion. I would think that that was something that drove him, at least when he got into Jiu-Jitsu in the first place. I don't know whether or not it drives him now. Um, but from a purely financial standpoint, um, not a major risk in staying in Jiu-Jitsu and you can make plenty of money. Um, pretty big risk of, of time and energy and effort to, to try to become an MMA superstar, and that might not necessarily pan out. So it'll be interesting with him. I, I think for him, motivation is going to be a big thing for him, and he's going to have to decide whether or not he wants to, to live a comfortable life right now making six figures or so. Um, and staying in jiu-jitsu or whether he wants to to risk making a, a decision that might be a bad financial decision that's going to take a, a few years out of his life at least. And, and by that I don't mean he's going to die sooner, but I mean like it, it's going to take a lot of time to to work his way up to the top of 
work, work his way up to the top of the MMA game. Um, so I, I, I think maybe maybe by like I'll, I'll say twenty twenty one because he said that this year he was going to retire. Um, you, you probably figure by like March April twenty twenty one you might have a better idea of how this question is going to go. But if he's not training MMA in the meantime, that's a lot of time in his athletic prime that's being wasted too. Next question. Um, do you think any failed Olympic hopefuls will transition to MMA this year? Uh, so I guess Bryce Meredith would be one of them uh, if he does make the team, which I don't expect him to. Um, afterwards, at least he's planning to go to MMA. Uh, so that's one who's making a transition to MMA. This question is interesting to me in that there are going to be some weight classes where we're going to have world champions who aren't going to make the team. It looks like 86 kilograms is going to be Jaden Cox and um, David Taylor, who are both world champions, who are going to have to face off against each other for for a shot on, for, for a chance to make the lineup. So one of those two probably won't be on the team. Um, if Jaden Cox decides to go up to 97 kilograms, then it'll be either him or Kyle Snyder. And Kyle Snyder had talked about wanting to get an MMA a while back. Um, and he hasn't been as successful in international wrestling as he had been initially. Uh, while he was still in college, he he won a world title, then won the Olympics in 2016, and then won another world title in 2017, uh, but hasn't won a world title since then, and has had some somewhat surprising losses ever since then, too. It doesn't look like he's as far ahead of the field as he used to be. So for Kyle Snyder, if if Jaden Cox decides to go up to 97 and knocks him off, does Kyle Snyder say, you know what, I had three world titles in wrestling. I've, I've accomplished a lot. I, I think at this point it, it makes more sense for me to try to become a, an MMA champion now. That would be interesting. Um, he's sort of been back and forth on whether or not he wants to do MMA. It, it seems like when he talks about how he wants to do it, it's after like a big event, so there's sort of like an emotional high to it. But when, when he has more time to think about it, he kind of leans towards wrestling. Um, so maybe maybe losing out on a spot on the roster ends up making him want to move. But even still, the thing with Snyder is even if he doesn't make the Olympic roster, he could still make a world team in, in, a, non, in a non-Olympic year pretty easily for him. So it's not like he'd only, or it's not like he'd have to wait four years to be relevant in wrestling again. So I'm not sure, but it'd be pretty cool if he did um, decide to transition. If if Jaden Cox ends up moving up and taking his spot, Jaden Cox, I don't think has any desire to get into Brazil or get into MMA. He he's done a little bit of jujitsu training, um, did a um, a wrestling t- tutorial with um, the guys at BJJ Fanatics. I think they have a wrestling fanatic spinoff, and did a podcast with them and talked about uh, how he didn't really have a whole lot of interest in going into MMA. Uh, so for him, if he's the one who gets beaten out by either David Taylor or Kyle Snyder, I don't see him moving over. Uh, David Taylor, he'd be great in MMA, but I don't think he's ever gonna. I don't think he's ever planning on moving over. Uh, though he was pretty close to Bo Nickel, maybe Bo Nickel might be able to have a little pull on him, but I, I don't. I don't see that happening. Um, then there's also Kyle Dake and Jordan Burroughs going up against each other. Dake has talked about MMA. Uh, he had that video of him hitting pads and talking about how he, he might want to try it out some at some point. Um, but when, one of the things I noticed with him hitting pads is that he didn't look particularly great at it, the point being there. Uh, it doesn't seem as though that's something he's been doing for a long time or something that he's been like building towards. Um, so if you do get him in MMA, it's not as though uh, it's something that he's been preparing for for a long time. Uh, Jordan Burroughs, I, I think if he's going to fight, it's probably just going to be once, and it's going to be for someone who, who massively overpays for him and doesn't get a return on their investment. Um, so even if Dake ends up beating him out for a spot on the roster, don't really see Burroughs doing much in MMA. So I guess that's at least for the big names. Um, but as far as the smaller names, you know what, let me see from the 2016 trials uh, how many of the guys lost there and ended up going into MMA or at least having some success there. Uh, 
Let's see. Okay, so this is 65 kilograms, which is like around featherweight. I think it's 143. Uh, so Frank Molinero made the team, uh, but he's coaching wrestling now. Colin Russell's not an MMA. Logan Stieber, BJ Fittrell, Zane Rutherford, no. James Green, nope. They're still wrestling. Jimmy Kennedy, nope. Dean Heil, nope. Reese Humphrey, nope. Jason Chamberlain, nope. Aaron Pico, yes. Um, but Pico, we knew ahead of time, was going to go to MMA. Um, none of these heavyweights have moved over to MMA that I, or at least not that I know of. Um, let's see for some of the other weights. Yeah, neither, none of these heavyweights have moved over. This is put together kind of weird. It's not like in a pure bracket form. Uh, let's see, 197. I don't think any of these, or any of these 97 kilogram guys moved over to MMA either. Um, 86. Ed Ruth. Oh, Ed Ruth, Tech Fall, Duran Wynn. That's interesting that those guys face each other. Uh, so both Ed Ruth and Duran Wynn uh, went to MMA after that. Uh, looks like that's it for 86 kilograms. 74. None of those guys are in MMA that I know of. 57. Tomasello, Waters, Megaludis, no, 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 Cologne, nope, Escobedo, nope, he's coaching, Garrett, no, he's still wrestling. Hmm. Yeah, I think for the most part, a lot of these guys didn't go over to MMA. A lot of them, a lot more of them have gone into coaching and wrestling than have gone over to MMA, which I guess goes back to the point of there being more opportunities in coaching and even still being an, athlete, an active athlete as an, at an Olympic training center, uh, and which a lot of those are getting a lot more money, which sort of seems like a way to... If you're going to be a booster, it seems like a good idea to put a lot of money into an Olympic training center for the wrestling program because it seems like doing so, in a way, you're kind of paying off former athletes in terms of once they've already graduated, if they want to stay put, uh, you're paying to keep them put there and keep them training there. And then also, uh, by keeping those guys around it, having them connected to the to the wrestling teams uh, definitely makes it a better place for the top recruits to want to go. But yeah, it looks like for the most part, a lot of these guys... Um, have stayed within the wrestling world after losing. It's not as though a lot of them have moved over to MMA. There, there are a few uh, that moved over. Um, you have Ed Ruth, Theron Wynn, and um, who was the other one that I just remember? And um, Aaron Pico, yeah. So, I, I mean, there are a few of them. I'm sure there'll be a few guys from the, the 2020 trials, which I believe, which I believe are going to be in April, who are going to transition to MMA, and will probably have a decent name in the sport four years from now, but this list isn't as impressive as I thought it would be. Uh, not not as many guys who I would have expected to to be in MMA as as I thought. Okay. Um, I think I have a couple more questions. Uh, two more. Uh, have you seen the story about the Houston Astros? Is there an MMA is there an MMA equivalent? And if so, how would it be handled? Uh, the Astros story. I'm not. I don't follow baseball that closely. Uh, but my understanding of it is that. In baseball, when the pitcher, before he throws to the catcher, the catcher will frame where he wants the pitch to be and then also um, put up a sign for what type of pitch it's going to be. So it'll be like a sign for a fastball, which is kind of like a, a ball that generally moves straight forward. Uh, but then you have like signs for sliders. Um, you may frame it outside the plate where you're trying to have him purposely throw a ball to get the, the batter to chase after it. And if there's a guy on base, 
I think most teams kind of have it where they might have like some little codes where they might like look over to the batter and kind of let them know uh, if a different kind of pitch is coming or if an off-speed pitch or a slider is coming or, or, or like a, an intentional ball is coming. Um, but they don't... That, that's more of like a, a person-to-person thing. It's not like they actually have like electronics involved or they're like using like loud noises from the dugout where the Astros, they were like banging on trash cans to, to indicate certain signs. Uh, they also had like buzzers that were attached. I don't know how you would make an MMA equivalent to that. I guess the idea, the idea of what the Astros was doing was, was they were taking information, they were taking tells from an opponent before they the opponent did a move. I guess if you were taking a tell from an opponent in MMA, it'd be if you were listening to the corner and taking information from there. But if a corner is yelling loud enough for you to hear them, or for their fighter to hear them, it's kind of an assumption that the the opponent's going to hear them too. Uh, so it's not as though there's an issue if if I'm fighting and I hear my opponent's corner call for something for me to make an adjustment to that, I guess if you like bug their locker room, um, and then we're like trying to listen to what they were saying before the fight for game plans that that might be analogous to what the Astros did. Uh, maybe you had like a video camera in there and you watching what their warmups were, uh, in MMA though, if that happened, you'd probably figure that if a fighter got caught, that their win would be taken away and they'd be suspended for a long time, if not life. Uh, in the Astros' case, they didn't have their World Series taken away, and I think just a few people were suspended for one year. Um, but again, I don't know that we've ever had something like that in MMA, so it's hard to say how it's handled in MMA versus how it was handled in baseball, or that they were doing it wrong in baseball. I don't know enough about sign stealing or how common or prevalent it is. Um, so I, I, I guess I wouldn't take a take a hard make a hard take towards um, what happened with the Astros, but as far as MMA goes. It'd be pretty hard to pull off something somewhat of that. Last question. In honor of Bucky Barber, do you have any stories of awful parents in your time refing jujitsu? <laughs> um, not really. I, I, hmm. I think what's interesting about jujitsu refs or, or refing jujitsu compared to other sports is if you're going to ref jiu-jitsu, it's pretty much a requirement for most places, and I guess it can vary by where in the country you're at, um, depending on like how many colored belts are available. Um, but where I'm at right now, which is in the Chicago area, um, for the most part, most tournaments aren't going to allow people who are under purple belt to ref. Um, so the assumption then is that everyone who's refing is purple belt or higher, so purple, brown, or black. Uh, so I guess with that being known, if you're going to give a jiu-jitsu ref a hard time, you're going to be giving a purple, brown, or black belt a hard time. And if you're a parent who doesn't train, that might be a little intimidating. Not that I've ever like had a been in a position with a with a parent who's been upset with me where I felt like it was ever going to get to blows and I had to like remind them like, hey, you don't want to do this. But I think it's sort of implicit. I I think with most people, if you know that the person you're you're yelling at could beat your ass, you're probably going to be a little bit nicer. I think it's sort of like the the arm arm society is a polite society type of thing where. If you think that the person who you're talking to might have a gun, you're probably going to be a little bit nicer to him. I wonder if that's the case with uh, with with uh, refereeing grappling events, where maybe people are a little bit nicer just because they they kind of have that understanding. Um, so no, I haven't really had too many bad situations with parents. I mean, sometimes parents get annoyed with calls that I make. Um, with with children, you don't let them actually finish a submission before you step in. Like so, as a ref, like if a kid has an armbar. With adults, if an adult's got an armbar, like, they're both adults. If the guy doesn't want to tap and he wants to get his arm broken, like, well, you, you kind of have to let him do it. 
Uh, if it gets to a point where, like, there's clear damage, you can kind of step in there and stop it, sort of like what happened with Herb Dean and Tim Sylvia. Um, but as a ref, you're not, like, you don't have to, like, be on your on your toes and, like, make sure that once the arm hits full extension that you stop the match. Um, but with kids, you, you actually do have to watch really closely on some submissions, and if it does look like the arm's about to get fully extended, um, then it's on you as a ref to, to stop the match. So I've had times where I, I've made a decision to stop a match and the parents have complained about it, but it's never, like, been too bad. Um, and oftentimes when they complain, like, when I'm in a position to stop it, I'm also, like, directly in front of it, like, looking at it from a very close angle, whereas oftentimes they, they have nowhere near the angle I have on it. Um, so between me actually, like, understanding the mechanics of it and also, like, having a, a great angle of it, it, oftentimes if you disagree with me, it's kind of like, well, I, I know for a fact you didn't see what I saw, so <laughs> how mad can I really be at you for being annoyed at it? Um probably isn't all that useful if you drive your kid home and you tell them how they never really lost and it was the ref who screwed them over um definitely not going to make them any better but I, I i really don't take that too personally i've had parents who have like tried to like give me the 411 on their on their kids opponents like oh this kid he, he's gonna tie he's gonna untie his belt and he's gonna try to use it to take his time to let him do it and that's kind of annoying too but it's not it, it's really not the big a deal it's not like what you hear with like high schoolers who are Umping baseball games and like having parents just go after them. I haven't really had anything like that. So, though there are some parents who I feel might be future Bucky Barbers that I've that I've dealt with, where they might be a little overprotective of their kids. No one's really been that rough rough with me. So, can't say that I I've had too many bad experiences with that. But that'll cover it for um for this Q and A. Uh, if you guys like that, um, feel free to drop some questions in the comments below. Uh, you can also send some questions straight to my email address. Oftentimes, I'll just answer them on the spot, whether it's on, in a um, in a video comment or if you email me. Um, but I can also hang on to those and then bring them back into a into Q and A, kind of like what I did here. So, if this is popular uh, and I can get a bunch of questions, then I'll I'll definitely do more of these Q and A style ones. But I, I guess that'll cover it for this episode. I'll have more of a regular episode coming out uh, again. Ideally, that's going to be Tuesday, um, late Tuesday night. Um, but if I'm not able to do it, then uh, I'm sure I'll be able to figure out another time where I can, where I can record it and put it out sometime early to mid next week. Um, and then obviously after that, I'll be able to get back on a regular schedule of just doing the, the Sunday episodes. Um, so if you like this, feel free to subscribe again. Uh, so you can subscribe on your podcast platform, subscribe uh, to the channel on YouTube. Um, make sure you get a notification that way you know when the podcast is coming out. Um, if you didn't get a notification, you might not have gotten this here on a Thursday. Um, might have just been expecting to, to check back on it Sunday, so having that's definitely nice. Uh, and then obviously if you're subscribed to the podcast, it'll just automatically download into your feed, so that could be beneficial as well. So, hope everyone has a great week. Hope the fights um, in a couple of days go pretty well, and hopefully there's a, a lot to talk about on Tuesday.